Welcome to Arc Next Sessions, episode 87. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we are joined by Tom Falders, director of Oakland-based multidisciplinary practice, Falders Studio. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Great to be here. So it's cool for me to have Tom here because Tom and I were classmates back at Cranbrook. So we've known each other for 20 uh, some years now. And right after graduation, Tom moved out to San Francisco, right? And uh, we've just sort of kept in touch over the years. And uh, I think you've been doing amazing work. So can you tell us a little bit about how you landed in San Francisco just to start with? Well, San Francisco uh, was always my home, so I was uh, coming back and forth to it besides being elsewhere. And I definitely can relate to and feel very much a product of the West Coast (laughs) in that I feel like uh, we are constantly trying things out. Many times we don't know exactly what we're doing. But I feel like I I see this when I've lived elsewhere, that here there's a space, I hope, I think, I like to believe to make mistakes. You know, this overused word of innovation is just in the air continuously here. And um, I think that's pretty invigorating for an architect. So you have also surprised me in watching your work in a lot of ways, because it seems you've taken on a really disparate types of project. You've done some housing, you've done some small scale furniture things, you've done installations. You've also done quite a few, it seems to me, quite a few sort of facade wraps or facade treatments in both here and in, uh, I think, Japan, you had a big project. Yes, yes. Thank you for not starting off by asking me to tell me about your firm, uh, because that's (laughs) the first thing that everybody wants to know. And I've been doing this for a lot of years, and I still have not been able to crack that answer. Meaning um, there isn't one simple elevator pitch for um, working the way that that we work and, and many others as well, which I think is is constantly asking questions and, and trying things out at a various variety of scales and disciplines and discourses. And Hopefully that's not to say that there's not an agenda. I think there is. It's important Mm -hmm. to have one, but we don't feel like we need to define ourselves by type or even um, field of operation. So the project that you most recently popped up in my attention and that uh, got you onto the podcast today was this um, parking garage project that you're working on in the Wynwood District in Miami. So I don't know if any of you guys, my regular hosts, know anything about the Wynwood District, but I had never heard of it before. Well... Yeah, either. either had I. Is that the end? Okay, good. <laughs> and um, being from California, usually we think of other places to go to first before heading to Miami, since there are <laughs> so many similarities. Although I gotta say, having spent time there, it is wonderfully different. But uh, this this area of Wynwood, I've never seen anything like it. I really haven't. And one thing that's so interesting to me about this is that the more we travel around the world, the more that globalism kind of informs cities and certainly new architecture. It's it's been kind of an ongoing conversation with myself, if one is allowed to have a conversation with themselves, about when do we do we ever see something different, um, something that's mm-hmm. that's unexpected, especially at the urban level, and in this case, something that's contemporary. And this this neighborhood that's pretty kind of low scale at the moment. It's just a, a two stories. It's light industry. It's mostly uh, was for garment and shoe manufacturing. Has just been taken over completely by street art. And you walk down these streets, and which are largely empty, 
And practically every single surface is covered with a painting of one form or another. And it's bewildering, and it's, it's weird, and it's wonderful, and it's, it's pretty inspiring. And so it's not just me that thinks this. Um, it's mm-hmm. become yeah. um, you know, pretty much a, a destination, a kind of a creative edge condition for the city edge condition in that it's it's been pretty subversive because it has been street art, but it's it's becoming more codified as a place to go to. And hence, some of these developments are are starting to really take off there. What do people go there for? Are there nightclub type activities or what's the, if it's mostly industrial and manufacturing? They go there to see the presence of street art. Really? And because literally, I mean, we, you know, we all live in cities or towns and you can find this stuff everywhere. It's, it's, it's great. But here there's just such a high saturation of it. It's incredible. Have they managed to maintain a pretty high level of quality with the street art? Because I know, I mean, in in areas like this, there's a lot of, you know, young amateurs coming out to try to (laughs) spread their name. Yeah, I would say absolutely yes. Um, nicely, it's a mix of, you know, kind of just uh, both sponsored and sanctioned internationally recognized artists, you know, anywhere from Kenny Scharf to Futura 2000 to Aiko to Howard Nazem and Barry McGee and, and Swoon and on and on and on to, you know, of course, people that are not known and as well to street art and regular graffiti and tagging and, and however you want to define that. It's all in there. I should say something that's pretty interesting about the clients and developers that have gotten me into this and that have hired me. First, we're working in, in uh, Soho and developing neighborhoods there years ago. They currently own and curate the uh, Houston Bowery wall, if anybody knows that, that mural that's been going since the 70s, I think it is. And um, Keith Herring, I, I believe, made that, that wall famous. And to this day, I was there not that I was in New York not that long ago, and it's still being being curated and changed over with invited artists. So in around 2006 or so, they started seeing that there, there was something brewing in this neighborhood. They started Winwood Walls, what it's called, which is a local now tourist destination where there are all these kind of roll-up garage doors and walls around um, an outdoor kind of patio area, a space in between buildings, kind of the back of buildings. And so... They've been really fostering this neighborhood um, and cultivating it. They have a presence there, one of their offices, and they are by no means the only ones that are down there, but they really believe in, in what's taking place there. It's been great to, to know them, to, to work with them. And so now we're in the process of doing a very large building in the middle of this. The challenge, and I think what's really quite incredible is to try to maintain this sort of uh, ethos of the neighborhood at something that's at a much larger scale, that of an eight-story parking garage and a skin. It feels like there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction maybe in some neighborhoods to seeing a prevalence of street art, and regardless of how good it is, that it can still be seen as maybe something like most palliative, like, oh, just like encourage street art in this area, and it's still more or less like left behind former industrial scape that has no real commercial enticements for people to go there and like contribute to the area. But nonetheless, like it's seen as kind of a bridgeway to some kind of further development or further perhaps gentrification. Um, Is that something that you kind of got a vibe from at any point in the discussions around development for this area or like maybe community opinions about it? I mean, that's a really amazing, you know, observation. And and it's something that from my end, I I think about a lot and I realize I'm only, you know, it's I'm not, let's face it, I'm, I'm an 
architect professor in California of a certain age and everything else. And so there's definitely a clash of cultures. And I cannot pretend that even though we're engaged with this project that I'm of that culture, all I can do is 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 look into it and ask questions from, from our point of view of, of what's amazing about it. I hope that uh, as more developments take place in that neighborhood, that you don't kill off the very project for why it's there in the first place. Because it mm-hmm. is it has been kind of a bottom-up, you know, subversive early on street scene. So if you start to turn that into commodity, it's no longer that, is it? It's something else. Well, the whole idea of like whether or not it's a substantial or it's more of a, an ornamentation thing is kind of a perfect conversation to have around a parking garage because functionally the parking garage itself just needs to be a parking garage. but why not then make it actually something that is enjoyable to look at, is meshed with the current vibe of the neighborhood, in which case this one is, where it has that reference to the street art, where it really doesn't affect the fact that it's still a parking garage. You're not like <laughs> creating yeah. a parking garage yeah. for the 1% or anything like that. And I think that that's something that is really interesting when you start charting, not necessarily that there is a direct design influence among Miami or like these parking garages that we've we've since seen, but there is a real collection of this kind of burgeoning fancy parking garage collection of Mm -hmm. these incredible prize-winning architects attaching their names to hundreds of millions of dollars to build these, what are essentially still parking garages. But in the case of, say, for example, the Herzog and Demarone project is also rented out as a venue. Like you can have your wedding there for like, I think, $10,000 a night or something. (laughs) (laughs) And that the developer lives there. That's that's just astounding to me. So what, what did that project like how did that project or any of these other highfalutin parking garages factor <laughs> into your to your own work here? Well, the clients, when we first um, met with them and developers of this project, rightly so, challenged us and I think really are challenging themselves and the nature of this project to see the Wynwood area for what it is. And what it is is that it's a rougher, edgier, urban place. It's not the what's happening on Lincoln Road. It's not the design district where there's really high-end shopping and, and venues and therefore architecture. It's just that those places are amazing and they're a slightly different project. And so our challenge is, you know, how do you put something new that's still trying to be of the neighborhood? And the, the biggest thing we're trying to do, and... Uh, and I'm not trying to talk about our project, but just get back to kind of how you're positioning what's going on there. What we're trying to do... Well, you uh, can talk about your project. We want to hear about your project. <laughs> First, I'll say that, and then I want to talk about some of the others. But how do you make something, um, again, that's a big parking garage, that could be literally local to its neighborhood in that it could only be built here? And I really do think that what we are attempting to do will mostly makes sense once it exists and you're standing in that neighborhood surrounded by all of this work that I was just talking about previously. That's almost like in the back of your head as you're looking forward at this garage. Then I think there will be this, oh, okay, there's something going on here. Until that time, all we have is representational projection and and information and, and hunches. What is pretty great, I think, that's happening overall in Miami, and it's not just because of people's wish list only, but There is a planning code, and I I don't really have the specific language at the moment in front of me, but but in essence, for new parking garages with cars in the air, the desire is to cover up those cars so you don't see them. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so this isn't only 
you know, being provoked by developers trying to make a, some kind of spectacle, though it is. But um, the city, I think, unknowingly is behind generating what I think is a new building type in a way, mm-hmm. in that it's not only cladding the cars from within, but it becomes this urban opportunity of any number of sorts, as we're saying, on the outside. And for me, I think one would need to go further back from the, the herzog Duran project to the Marina Towers in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, the Bertrand Goldberg. The first 18 floors, right, of the towers are exposed parking in this, you know, pretty high-end riverfront condo building. And they're exposed, they're on display, and I think it's wonderful. I think it's incredible. And I think this is true of that project. They're required to back in, right? So you're always yeah, seeing the butt amazing. end of the car. it's amazing. It's so well thought. So it's like this <laughs> control of the facade. Oh, I love because it. Because you're only seeing the, the tail end of all of them. Yeah. And each one is a pixel of information. <laughs> and that pixel is always up to date, meaning it's always current because the cars yeah. are, are continually yeah. being sold and, and new ones purchased. So the facade of, of that building when it was constructed in 1964 and today in 2016, yeah. the framework, right? The kind of the, the system of that is still in place, but the facade is arguably different if you think of them as pixels. I think that's yeah. really sophisticated. I think, I think that's like an open-ended system that I find really inspiring. It's really cool to think of it that way. It reminds me that the most, the best parking garage we have here in Indianapolis right now is um, this one at the Eskenazi Hospital where the architect Rob Lay yeah, did an yeah. installation on the wall of it. And the, the story I just heard that just last week, we had the executive, the CEO executive director of the hospital entity giving a talk at our AIA meeting. And he talked about how he would give a tour of the campus and people would say, oh, I love all this art because there's a lot of art integrated on the campus. But this one visitor, or I guess he hears this frequently. They look at this big yellow and blue facade installation and Uh say, that's a beautiful piece of art. And then later he'll say, so did you like that one that was on the parking garage? And they say, what parking garage? Like they didn't see the garage itself, right? But that kind of goes to this very opposite attitude of the garage needs to be completely hidden, which I would say some of these garages featured in this article would take that approach, whereas Goldberg and maybe Herzog de Miron, you know, they take this other attitude of celebrate the cars in the air. Well, all I was going to add on that, because I think that's a great observation in that, you know, a lot of what's happening with that project, these ones in Miami, and absolutely with what we're trying to do in Wynwood, um, District of Miami, is to hide the garage in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Don't ignore the fact that there's a garage there, but actually bring people to it. You know, not just to park, but bring people to it at an urban level, meaning that that eyes are, are on or in the city. It's a place of, it's a desirable moment as opposed to, to one that you, you just kind of want to wish it away. That, that's a <laughs> great way to take on a problem. So I don't want to be presumptuous, but you are in the Bay Area and this is a car-based project. And I'm just wondering whether either internally within the studio or just you personally had any thoughts about the implications of designing a parking structure in the context of these other conversations around driverless vehicles and how the obviously everything is overpromised, but the idea that, oh, if we have driverless vehicles, then we'll minimize parking requirements and we'll also just have an entirely different cityscape. And whether that was something that, yes, while it is very much still in the future, whether that was something that ever came into your thought process for something like this. Well, it goes back to some of the the kind of comments that 
Donna was putting out there, or you both were, I think, about today's conversation in light of uh, cross-programming. So Mm -hmm. yes, it's a great question. What happens to these spaces if automobiles become something else? But what's what's interesting about the self-driving vehicles that I've learned, I was on an autonomous vehicle symposium a, a couple of years ago. And since we're engaged at the level of architecture, unless, you know, trying to redesign the, the, the vehicle, obviously, what happens in some of these places, if you'd imagine, say, a large office building, the automobiles all show up at the same time in the morning and drop off their occupants. And then it's ridiculous to park a car during the day. That's what you're getting at. Well, I have a parking garage. They're on to another job during the day, like Uber is, driving around. And then they show up at the end of the day to pick up their employees or, or, or whatever the case may be. And so what this does is it challenges, yet again, another architectural type of the automobile, what should we call it? I don't know what to call it, but the pickup drop-off zone. Because you no longer have the, the, the parking lot for, you know, 1,500 cars. You have 1,500 cars showing up at the same time. And right. so there has to become this kind of like manifold you know, exchange <laughs> place. Hive mind, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's pretty, I think that's exciting. That's, that's, that's good stuff. <laughs> to start thinking about because that changes, you know, how we live and the spaces we live relative to hopefully uh, an interesting progression in that technology. Tom, this is a podcast. So a lot of people that are listening to this have not had the chance yet to look at the design of your parking garage, but the design is is really fascinating. It's It's very graphic. I was wondering if you could talk about the decisions and what's behind the design of this facade. And for those listening, you can always come back to uh, to our website and look at the show notes and we'll have lots of photos of this project. Uh, sure. We wanted to, it's about 50,000 square feet surface area, wrapping an eight-story building on on three sides. So it's practically an entire city block on three sides of it. And what was important was to have a non-repeating geometry or pattern that was highly figural that would, in essence, take over the tectonics that are behind the skin, which are fairly orthogonal and regular, matching what often takes place in the neighborhood of of how artists just use architecture, denying any of its articulation, whether it's windows or fences or whatever, and just uh, consider it a kind of flat canvas that merges tectonic with kind of new imagery. And so this was broken down into a series of highly irregular shapes. Irregular on purpose so that they were nameless. Nameless in that Mm, um, it didn't add up, it didn't make a lot of sense. And therefore, our hope is that as one moves around the building, there's almost new associations that are being formed on on the architectural pattern that we put there. And to make something that's non-associative is... A huge challenge, and it's something I've been super interested in. They become these these free agents that that are are open and and can be taken over perceptually, and also kind of in terms of naming. Just as we might try to think about clouds that way, um, if we discover figures in them or what have you. So there's a kind of uh, hopefully um, cognitive dynamics, you might say, in the skin. And part of this is purely functional in that um, it's like a disruptive pattern system, which is a form of camouflage and certainly used in nature, uh, the military and elsewhere of breaking down very, very large surfaces into smaller areas of indistinguishable visual noise. So you might think of a cow and why does a cow have 
black or brown spots on it that might not blend into its background of a green field. But it has nothing to do with blending in with something and just breaking that into different visual pieces. And, and certainly when they're grouped together, it's, it's a part of uh, a, a survival mechanism. So there's that going on. <laughs> and if you're not, if, if uh, I have no idea if that makes any sense, if you don't Absolutely. have an image in front of you. But then we're also doing this thing that I think is, you know, really central to the project, but it's also cannot be known until it takes place. In that, we're allowing areas, large swatches of these, we're allowing them to be painted upon using a system of second skins that we've developed. And those skins uh, will also be metallic. They will be either painted on site or painted in people's studios from around the world and shipped to the site install and installed. They can be taken down, um, so nothing's permanent. But these canvases or blank spots that I call them, they're not rectangular, so they're not neutral. They already have a ton of uh, figuration and an association, again, an open-ended one. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens because now we have kind of a takeover of the takeover. And I think it has to be that because this isn't just an empty empty wall that's on the street. This is, this is something new. This is something that's being developed. So it was important to add something to the blank canvas of the facade that you see on the street. And so is that a curated program that the developer of the parking garage will do to bring in the new artists or how, how does that yes. work? Yes. So absolutely it is that, you know, some of these blank spot canvases are six stories in height and are, you know, a hundred feet up in the air. So this isn't something that is just kind of, you know, a, a free for all. It will be curated, but it will change over. And some of the spaces that are lower down, it would be my intention that the changeover happens very rapidly. And mm -hmm. some of the other ones that come and go, they shouldn't always be in the same place. That might happen every couple of years. It's mm -hmm. critical. We didn't just want to have an urban skin where there could be artwork, say, on the corner. I mean, that's such a known entity, right? It's like <laughs> any urban mall is like, yeah, let's get the artist and put them on the, on the corner. And now we somehow have art. See, that's the parking garage in my neighborhood. <laughs> but, but yeah, exactly. We're so Midwestern here. We're so boring. No, 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 no. <laughs> we have that in L.A. too. Uh, yes, we have that here too. I'm glad to hear. But this needed to be much more of an open-ended system so that maybe at some point in time, there might only be artwork way in an upper corner. And that's it. It has to follow its own verb-like dynamic condition in time. It's like you, you float this thing out there in the world and let's see what happens. If it's always got to be in the corner, it will always be in the corner. You know, it's, it's a done deal. So it's important to make this thing have a lot of possibilities that we're not even quite sure entirely, you know, how to make it all work. All work. That's, that's the fun of it. That's what makes it interesting. Last week, we published a, uh, a project, a competition-winning project by local architect Tom Wiscombe, which is a, an unusually shaped billboard, basically, yes. that um, you're familiar with the project. Yeah. Have you considered the possibility that maybe this your building could, could be used for advertising in the graphics? I mean, was that part of the program at all when, uh, when, when you were commissioned to do this? No, we didn't in that that would go against kind of what's happening in, in the neighborhood there of the, the, of the street art. However, and this goes beyond what I can, you know, talk intelligently about when it gets down to funding and, and supporting the project and, and revenue streams and everything else, which of course advertising would be a part of. But for the design of the project, it's really critical that we try to understand the local authenticity. And the authenticity there is 
painting by artists on architecture in that neighborhood. So that's what we're interested in. It was critical that there were a number of conversations about, you know, inkjet printing onto canvases that were hung or, you know, kind of vinyl self-sticking prints of art that could be stuck onto these panels and removed. And, you know, all interesting ideas, but I wasn't the only one, but I was perhaps the strongest one vetoing absolutely every single one of those ideas. You need to have the paint onto the building itself. I just think that we know it when we see it. And we know it when it's a replica of something else. And what's amazing here is you can walk right up to this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's quite tangible, even as a thin skin. Paul, I love that you brought up that Tom Wiscombe billboard project, which is one I was looking at not long ago because I gave this talk about billboards to my local sign revision committee. And um, in doing research for that talk, I came up with Tom's project and some other billboard projects in L.A., one by um, Lorcan O'Herlihy. Lorcan O'Herlihy, mm-hmm. his name? O'Herlihy, yeah. O'Herlihy. And then these ones that are de- being developed by a, a university in Peru that are actually billboards that also do things like filter the air and filter out particulate matter and suck humidity out of the air and condense it into then drinkable potable water. And the Wiscombe project is also, it's advertising, but it's also inhabitable space, right? There's actual weather shelter and and other elements to that whole installation. And I guess knowing we were talking about Tom, thinking about those things, I've been thinking a little about these, as you said, Tom, cross-programmatic projects or projects that have free agent programming, right? Where they can be many things at the same time. And I'm wondering how that's, why that's coming about. And I know none of us really know, we're all just speculating, but you know, there's, is it just technology is going so quickly that we're able to incorporate more technologies into one thing? Or is it, you know, is it density and overpopulation that we're having to shove as many things as we can into one built object? (laughs) I, I don't know, but it's a really curious direction that we're it's almost like we're not just being asked to build these buildings anymore we're really being asked to do all this other stuff as well well i mean speaking as a publisher i see this this architectural movement almost in a kind of analogous to uh native advertising people are starting to become blind to uh to things that they don't want to look at so in in terms of like tom wiscombe's project for example it's an opportunity to pay attention to billboards again. Right. Because there's something different. <laughs> yeah. That opportunity is obviously for the advertisers. So it's, like, I mean, it's, it's uh, taking advantage of something that, that, that people do pay attention to and, and uh, using it for something else. I mean, that's just one, one example specific to advertising. Yeah, I think that's great. That makes a lot of sense. I think as a kind of sustainability issue to make something, you know, certainly not me just making this argument, but we have to look at sustainability in a broader sense of the of the word, not just some some kind of, you know, embodied energy or whatever. And so for something to be sustainable, maybe it needs to operate on a multiplicity of levels and functionalities, ones that might not even be known yet. So I think to build in a multivalent, you know, cross programming into a project. We do this as we understand intelligence and making things smarter. They just do more things. But I do think we're seeing lots of interesting work being done in terms of of aesthetics, in terms of kind of presenting architectural as as a social or cultural project that isn't just embodied with one kind of ideas, but is open-ended in a way. And maybe that is very much of our times. I'm I'm not exactly sure. but, But I think as a broader project, it's entirely relevant because probably, you know, our phones are more than just phones, of course, you know, they're computers and cameras and everything else. So as we come to expect more of less, 
Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we ask that of a billboard or a parking garage? And, you know, this is an Amesian, less is more kind of thing, but <laughs> less, less does more. Mm, nice. I like that phrase. Yeah, Less does good. more. Ken, did you want to jump in here? <laughs> Come on, man. No, I, 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 I really love, I love the parking garage and I, I, we have a return to the cities and and the way to kind of, a, you know, people are returning to the cities and a way to attract people to the cities is to present uh, different ideas about building. And I think what I love about these projects is that you've got an element of public art happening. You've got uh, an attraction, kind of this signage, and um, you've got the, I think there's, I think people are getting smarter about loosening up on the zoning and bringing a little bit more complexity and, and dialogue mm. into the zoning because, we're not going to build the way we used to build. So we have to build something that is intelligent and smart looking and attractive. And, you know, we don't do a lot here in Minneapolis in terms of parking garages, but you know, the one parking garage that did get a lot of attention was because of Valspar and they wound up painting this kind of pixelated, they created this, this canvas on this parking garage here with their paint um, and created a kind of a, a public art piece. I'm sure it functions on some level, but um, I think what I love about this and I, I'm always curious because I'm, I'm I'm dealing with a client right now, and one of the things the client wanted to do in their bar restaurant is that they wanted to just oh we just want to hang up art on the wall yeah and I'm like well shit anybody I've said you know <laughs> you want to be a cutting edge you want to have this kind of idea about your business you want to you know, attract these this kind of client I said everybody in this fucking town does that shit. <laughs> Nobody cares about your 30-day artist hang-up. And I'm like, why don't we get a couple of artists in here? So we've got a, a very popular Minneapolis building painter. We got a popular graffiti artist. And we're actually combining their efforts for this one wall in this really ridiculously dank corridor to try to create some visual interest in this space. And I keep talking to them about like, you need to curate your space. If you really want to do this project well, you have, I tried to get them to hire a curator. I know someone in town who does this kind of thing. And I said, you just can't, you can't wheat paste authenticity. I said, you're trying to hit the ground running. And I said, you don't have, you're trying to create an environment that is authentic and you're trying to create something that it looks like it was that's been here for you know like cbgb's you can't recreate cbgb's over fucking night you right. just can't do it it has to happen over time <laughs> but how do you do that <laughs> and one of the things i'm striving to get across to him is that first off we have a building owner who sees his beautiful baby this ugly baby is beautiful and everybody thinks their <laughs> ugly baby is beautiful but this ugly baby is a fucking <laughs> ugly baby. And he doesn't want him to touch the brick. So fine, don't touch the brick. So we've got some jipboard walls. And I'm like, listen, give one of these walls to one of the local. We have a great art school here in Minneapolis. Give this wall to a student there for three months. Let them curate a project here. And then let somebody come in after that and curate a project there. And this is rotating, this kind of an artisan residency that could happen. And it's really, really hard to get people to kind of think about this. So that you did this is really just fascinating to me. What I'm more interested to see what happens is how you curate, because there's a code among graffiti artists. They're not going to tag over each other's work. There's a kind of hierarchy. I always get the sense that they never really hit each other's work. But I've been tooling around as we've been having a discussion. So I've been tooling around Google Maps and looking and uh, Google Earth and looking at the the other buildings in the neighborhood. And it's interesting to see what happens when buildings aren't covered with, with this great street art. They get yeah. tagged to shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like it, it's almost like they're building in their own market, right? It's like if you don't put our art on your building, we're gonna tag the shit out of your building until you decide to do it. Yeah. 
I mean, what's what is refreshing in this particular Wynwood neighborhood is that it's not just local artists. That, I mean, definitely well-known artists are invited in to work, but the work often changes over. So it is, because this is part of what you're getting at as well, that it's not permanent. That's a part of what we're talking about here with the street art. It shouldn't be assumed to be permanent. It might last for a long time, but it doesn't necessarily have to. And what's incredible when you go out to Wynwood, and I've seen just, you know, mind-blowing murals, and I'll go back, you know, six months later or something, and it's gone, and it's painted over by something else. And that loss of something is a gain of something else, right? Um, This kind of transitional neighborhood. It will be interesting to see what happens, but what has been kind of great to see in doing this project, the uh, some of the people that are involved on, on our project in Woodwood are also involved now with uh, a neighborhood uh, design review for Wynwood. And so some of the other projects that have gone up for review, they might be using art in a way that you're describing your frustrations with the client in that case of let's just, you know, grab some art stuff that looks like art and, you know, slap it on a wall. And I, and I guess we're doing the right thing. And this project has challenged or people on the, the board are using this project to challenge some of the other developers that are trying to come into the neighborhood. I think they're not sure what to do with themselves, and I don't blame them, because ours is pretty unique. It's a parking garage. It's not like a, you know, a condo development or something. So we do have the advantage of, you know, a maximum amount of surface area. But I think it is, it's forcing, you know, any of us involved with this kind of thing to ask some hard questions. You know, what do you, what can you do? How do you engage with, you know, kind of a, a mixture of, of, let's just say, creative art sources besides the architect? And, and how do we work in a way that it's not trivial or kind of like a plop art versus <laughs> something else, right? I can only call it something else at this point because it's always going to be something different. Well, coming from within the art institution as I am, I, I can say that the, the real emphasis in art institutions right now is on experiences, not, you know, the plop art, not the the object, but the experience of something that is fleeting, but is sort of curated and set in place. And then there is your own, you bring your own, you know, your own experience of it to the place where it is. I would use that as a way to lead into the project of yours, Tom, that I love so much, one of many, which is the BAMScape project, which you did at the uh, the um, Berkeley, Berkeley Art Museum. What's it called? Berkeley Museum uh, it, of Fine Arts? Technically, it it's, the, it's the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archives. So BAM, okay. PFA. Yeah. Amelia, you talk a little about this because talking about experiences. I was going to sadly intervene that the BAMscape that Falder Studio did was in the old, remind me of the, the architect for the old um, original museum. Mario Ciampi. Yes, which has since been sentenced to to death by lack of seismic retrofit. And now, of course, we have the new Delosco Renfro Berkeley Art Museum in downtown Berkeley, coordinated with, a, I believe, the film archive is somewhat separate. So we have a giant screen projecting experiences from Delosco Renfro's building into downtown Berkeley. Yes. I'm still going to blame the, the destruction of that beautiful, brutalist structure on DSR because I like to blame them for destroying museums. <laughs> well, it's, they're good at it's, it. it's the building is still there and it's and it's it, it's still in limbo. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's unfair of us to, to say that it's it's gone too soon when it's not yeah, gone yet. Right. <laughs> But uh, no, Donna is right to bring that up and, and to reference me specifically because I, yeah, I, I went to school at UC Berkeley and I spent so much time in that building. And I remember when the BAMScape went in and just how robustly it was used. Um, for those who aren't familiar with what it looks like, it's kind of an undulating series of bright orange 
I'd say seeding. I don't know how, but if you have a specific term that you like to use, Tom, but basically create a whole new topography on the ground floor of the museum that people could lounge in, hang out. Um, they had a series of live performances staged at the BAM that the BAMscape served as kind of an audience receptacle for, one of which that I remember most prominently was Terry Riley's performance. Mm. And I guess that was 2009. Probably, yeah. Really fantastic stuff. And just something that like integrated into the, you know, cold, huge, monolithic, (laughs) gray space. So interestingly, because it was the absolute opposite of that (laughs) in this warm, wacky, undulating orange thing and just completely went with it. Yes, many people aren't going to know the story behind the the building, but the the Chompy building, because of seismic, but also code and and, um, accessibility issues, it's one of the best buildings in the Bay Area, hands down, in terms of just kind of its architecture. But it was impossible to raise funds to retrofit it. Nobody wants to raise money to retrofit an existing (laughs) project. They want to build a new one. So Toyo Ito finally won that commission and designed an incredible building for the same site that the new DSR building is on. And they got fairly far in that project, really, in terms of design and development. And then the 2008 crash hit, and they just couldn't come close to raising the money. So they asked, uh, story has it, is they, they went back to Ito and asked him if he wanted to design another building that would be essentially, you know, less adventurous. He declined and they put out another, uh, did another round, which DSR finally got the commission. And that turned into, in this case, what was going to be raised was now renovated and added to. And so that's kind of what has happened with that Berkeley Art Museum. It is in limbo, the existing brutalist building that you rightly so call very cold. But what was, I thought, pretty amazing and really kind of the most radical part of this whole project that I got involved with by with Larry Rinder, the, the director of the museum, is he wanted to open up the center of the museum, because center atrium space, to students, such as yourself, um, when you were there, to be able to just go hang out, study, um, drink coffee, and use it during the day as just a place to be. And then, of course, on certain nights to have events and whatnot. So I had this impossible task of creating some kind of environment where students could work on with their laptops and potentially spill coffee on and at the same time has to look amazing because it's the it's like this 1500 square foot centerpiece of the museum that's going to last for you know one to two years all for a crazy budget and has to be installed with essentially you know no sound and no toxic materials so <laughs> it was a little bit crazy trying to pull that off but while the i would say formally the the, the kind of undulating lumpy surface topography that you rightly call it was, you know, a bit of a known kind of trope. I mean, nothing is invented there for us. But in order to make this lumpy surface, and this goes back to, I think, what we were just previously talking about, my idea was to make, let's just make something that's wrong. So we did all of our, (laughs) you know, our anthropomorphic studies of like how people lounge and sit. And so you could have, you know, up to 500 people sitting on this thing. And then let's throw that all out the window and make this thing that is wrong, wrong, wrong. But so right. Just like, a, <laughs> just like a boulder field is wrong in that, you know, when a rock is sitting there, it really doesn't care about you, that you want to sit on it or eat a sandwich on it or whatever, right? There's just no, there's no presence there. And yet we come to that 
thing. And we now, you know, invent an association with it and we figure out what to do with it. And absolutely, I wanted that same situation to take place in the center of the museum where knowing that it would be students that would be reclining or, you know, several hundred people showing up for a Terry Riley show. Of course, they would they were able to, you know, find ways to, to occupy it, but it needed just to be weird from so many different configurations that you kind of need to figure out what's going to work for you. And if you look at the photos when it's being used, it's it was really fun for us to see people just, you know, using this in these crazy ways. And to be perfectly honest, I sort of had to stay away after a while because I was so afraid, this is the architect in me, that people would trip and slip and fall and, you know, get just, you know, things would happen. And often it's an elderly crowd that's showing up for a performance or whatever. And while I, on purpose, you know, set it up that way, and, you know, we were all, you know, everybody on the museum staff, everybody was on board with doing it. It's still kind of nerve wracking. Um, <laughs> but we figured, you know what, um, people are grownups in the world and they're going to do what they're comfortable doing. Right. And I think we take that kind of thing for granted. Uh, we feel like we have to, you know, we're tasked to be kind of like a top down safety inspector as architects. And we take we take that responsibility away from everybody because of litigious situations. This being a temporary, you know, installation in the museum, we felt like we could open this conversation back up. Hence the wrongness. <laughs> So what happened when this installation came to its end of life at BAM? Were people able to uh, buy parts of it? Yeah, no, that's that's a critical question. And let me preface this first by saying we needed something that could, you know, we could get a lot of 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 form and figure out of a low budget. So I was trying to think, you know, what's the cheapest stuff to build with? Air came to mind. <laughs> and... Foam, the foam that we used is 95% air, being styrofoam or polystyrene foam. It's 5% bad stuff. <laughs> we had, you know, definitely some critical issues in thinking and wanting to know if we wanted to deal with this kind of thing. But that, that it can be downcycled. Um, so there are some processes out there in the world to, to work with this stuff. But, you know, in the meantime, it's, it's uh, these kind of styrofoam polystyrene products have been, you know, they're no longer legal in Berkeley and I think <laughs> San Francisco for like styrofoam cups and whatnot. So it's, you know, it's an illegal material and rightly so. It's, 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 it's bad stuff. So we figured that it, it could be at least recycled and we'd set that up for the museum. But unfortunately, they, their deinstall time is so quick. And the staffing, because um, they own the project, the staffing is so slim that we were trying to find another home for it. And there, there were really no takers at the time. And I was saying, let's put this out on the street because it's, it's a series of like 150 individual components, though quite large, but components nonetheless. Let's put it out, put it up on, uh, you know, social media. They'll, these things will be gone in, I guarantee you, half an hour. Like Craigslist free pile kind of deal? Or like students, is that what... students would take these things. Oh, I would have taken it. Oh, my God. For their yeah. apartment, <laughs> dorm, whatever. And I'm like, because I've done that on a previous project, Meat Room. And um, uh, it was all kind of disseminated that way. Was that meat? M mute. <laughs> oh, I thought you said meat. Yeah, sorry. No, sorry. M-U-T-E. <laughs> You're giving away steaks? <laughs> yeah, mute room. Anyways, the museum, rightly so, was not very comfortable with that because this was a branded, you know, identifiable 
artistic mm. icon in the museum of museum quality. And they didn't just want to have this thing show up on the street. And then all of a sudden, six months later, it's back in front of some dorm or some frat house, you know, back out on the street again. <laughs> it just becomes, you know, urban detritus. And they were really mindful of, of that, that kind of life. So, you know, it ended up um, um, getting trashed. And but then we, therefore we have to go back to the ninety five percent air thing. While it is you know a, a lot to uh, to dispose of, nonetheless, and it's a lot of evil stuff. I'm not I'm not claiming otherwise. <laughs> I'm not, but it's largely air voids. But it was it was. I, sorry, I just I just wanted to tag on. There was this was extended. It was only supposed to be up for I forget what what it was originally a year or something and and it and it worked pretty well and so um, they kept it up for for two years and it was supposed to be kind of the ending not art exhibition but one of the installations one of the ending installations in the museum as they were moving on to their next one in the meantime of course the construction of the new building was delayed and so they ended up doing other things there. Hey Tom, two quick questions for you. Can you talk a little just a a little bit about how your experiences at Cranbrook helped um, form you as a practitioner. And if you remember that, uh, that's, the, that's, that's <laughs> two, two of my favorite schools have always been Cooper Union and Cranbrook. And um, I've always wanted to hear somebody and looking at your work. It seems very, very, you're very hands-on and do a lot. It seems, and I could be wrong. So tell me, please tell me, do a lot of your own fabrication and installation as well? No, at the time. Oh. Yes. Occasionally. Yes, and sometimes. But, you know, having done these kinds of projects over the years and as they increase in scale and scope and other things, you know, it's not something that's a mandate by any means for me or for Baldur's Studio to take on, though uh, occasionally we do. And the main thing I appreciate looking back on Cranbrook is I always felt like it was the weird uncle of the Ivy League schools at the time. And <laughs> this kind of like a Cranbrook Cooper Union connection that, you know, was hovering against, you know, the New York schools and Boston and elsewhere and in dialogue and not, right? Again, kind of the the crazy uncle off to the side doing doing God knows what, but people paying attention to it. I think that climate academically has changed as they should. You know, a lot of years have, have taken place since then and and education and and locations of focused efforts continue to change around and move around the country, if not elsewhere. But at the time, that's that's what I appreciated about going there and and its kind of position relative to the conversation and architecture. So what are you reading and what are you listening to these days? <laughs> I'm reading, I, I'm just starting to read Gretchen Henderson, a book called Ugliness. Mm. And I'm interested in ugliness because of, well, a lot of what we're talking about. But ugliness, as she references, I think it's Umberto Eco in the intro, that it's, it's, it doesn't have a fixed set of rules. So it's, it's unpredictable. And in that case, it's dynamic where supposedly beauty has these kind of agreed upon attributes, therefore this kind of rule set and, and we know what to expect. Ugliness is the other. And I think that's the reason I'm interested in that is not because of something might be ugly or not, but because of those openings. And I think when we try things out, 
it's certainly in the design process, we're involved with a lot of ugliness. You know, we never let this stuff out into the world until we're comfortable with it, whatever the case may be. So hopefully we don't think it's ugly anymore. But let's face it, you know, most of the time we're wading through the design process and, and we're surrounded by ugliness um, <laughs> on our own terms, right? What we consider, there's no way we're going to do this. And it's a bit funny given the... Um, the Winwood project, um, because we've spent so much time on that pattern that nobody else would ever know, because it looks just kind of like this freeform irregularity, which it is, and yet it's so studied <laughs> in so many ways, and yet at times we'll study it so much that we kill it. And it's a new form of ugliness. <laughs> we have to step back, you know, and, and let it live again and get at it in a different way. So this 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 kind of um, dynamic state of of possibility, how they're using ugliness in the book, I, I'm 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 really interested in. What am I listening to? Oh, I'm not nearly cool enough to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> I'm not taking the bait on that one. That's <laughs> okay. We all listen to Britney Spears. <laughs> no, we don't. I actually love Aaron Betsky's response to that, which was, I don't want to say some aging baby boomer vampire yeah. weekend thing. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I love yeah. that he just, yeah, yeah I, that has yeah. always stuck with me. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, <laughs> I have a 12-year-old who keeps me current. Let me leave it at there that. There you go. <laughs> Tom, it's excellent talking with you. It's great to catch up with you. And, and yeah, I've really been been uh, enjoying seeing all the projects you're working on. And I'm really glad you shared that Winwood one with us. And the way you've spoken about it, I think, is so, as you just said, so open. And I love that architecture is becoming this so much more open to these other um, possibilities of how, how we judge it and how we create it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you all. And again, I, I'm, I'm really thrilled to have this moment with, with you because I, I, I get to see and read your thoughts. So this is, this is wonderful. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tom. We, we're uh, big fans of your work here at Arconnect and awesome. uh, we really enjoyed talking to you. Okay. Thank you. And thanks to everybody else out there listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Regarding our other podcast, uh, Arconnect Sessions One to One, if you didn't get a chance to yet, I recommend you check out the latest episode. We talked with uh, Michael Rotondi and Nels. President Vulcan, as he's known on the website, Nels yes. Long uh, <laughs> and M.A. Greenstein, both co-founders of Michael Rotondi's Rotolab. Yeah, it's a VR incubator. Among Definitely, other things. <laughs> among other things, yes. You could, uh, we've also published um, some some uh, stories about them recently on Arconnect, so you can check that out. And uh, stay tuned for this Monday. We have another one-to-one -one coming up. Amelia, what's, uh, what's that one? Yes, so that is going to be with the authors behind Never Built New York. They are the same authors behind Never Built Los Angeles and also the curators of that breakout exhibition from 2013 that looked out at all of the different architectural and urban design projects and transportation projects that never came to pass throughout the modern history of Los Angeles. So now they're taking that same look at New York City and the results are absolutely fascinating. They recently published a book with collecting all of these incredible projects that for many different reasons that they go into in the book never came to pass. They're also planning a future exhibition for it, but there will be more details about that on the podcast. So I should name their names actually, but the, yes, the interview is with Sam Lubell and Greg Golden. All right. Well, that'll be a good one. So until next week, talk to you then. Until next week. Great to talk to y'all. Thanks guys. Bye. Thanks. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.